because if you go in my way or the highway, well, that's not going to work. If you communicate only one way with everybody, some people are visual, some people are oral, some people want just a FaceTime, some people like coffee, some like people tea, you, you adapt. And I think that is the higher nature. Have the humility to believe that your way isn't the only way. Have the courage, in fact, to let go of that and know that you might make mistakes. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome to the show today. I am thrilled to introduce you to our guest. His name is Minter Dial, and he's an international professional and energetic speaker, multiple award-winning author, and specializes in leadership, branding, and transformation. And he's got the background to talk about this with real expertise. He's an agent of change. He's a three-time entrepreneur who's practiced 12 different professions, uh, including some fun ones we might get into a little bit later, and has changed countries 15 different times. So when you talk about being a change expert, that's the real deal. Uh, Minter's core career stint was 16 years where he spent as a top executive with L'Oreal. And he was a member of the Worldwide Executive Committee for the Professional Products Divisions. And we're uh, certainly gonna talk about some of that expertise and experience there. But we're gonna spend quite a bit of time talking today about his most recent book. He's written several, including a, a, The Last Ring Home, which was a uh, documentary film biographical book uh, focused on World War II story there. But today's book, the one coming out this week that we're excited about, is called You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And it is a fascinating topic and one that I think is of the greatest importance right now in the age that we're living in. So Mitra, thank you for being on the show with us. Welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you so much. I'd like to hopefully bring a little piece of soul into our conversation there. Well, having read your book, I am certain that we're going to achieve that today. So, Mintra, I want to start by asking you a question that's going to take us back a little ways, and that is, what is your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? Funnily enough, the memory I have is me playing soccer, football over here. I organized a game between us toffee-nosed public school boys at Eton playing a local team. And the idea was to bridge into them and have obviously competition, but then afterwards have the inevitable 19th hole kind of experience. Oh, Cause in England, you're allowed to do that by the way, after 16, we, in my school, we actually had a pub uh, where when you were 16, starting at 10:30 AM, that was open. You could go drink crazy, but the idea, so I, I, I was captain of that team. So it was about getting the, the other boys to join me on this journey. And then it was about playing the game. And it was a miserable day. It was one of those crappy, rainy days, hard to play good football. And, and the funny thing that happened to me was that I, I took, I, I play up front, I took a shot and I missed. I mean, it went over the top. And, but I also injured my left hip. So what I had to do, I was hobbled. So I ended up saying to the goalkeeper, hey, listen, We'll switch positions. At least I don't have to run. And no sooner that happened, they got a penalty. Uh, of course, they shot to the left. I dove to the right because 
that felt more comfortable. But um, anyway, we ended up winning. And the, the, the point is that I actually still feel that hip injury today. So it's something of a legacy piece for me. There was a mission to it. There was a purpose. And, and uh, I don't, can't say it was a grand success in, in terms of the objective of bridging, but that was my first experience. So organizing an activity as a young man to bring people together and using sport in that specific, but I, that's so interesting. You have a physical reminder in lingering pain or, or discomfort of mm-hmm. your effort to do that at that time. I went to see a doctor, you know how it was in the old days. We got a sponge and water. I actually chipped a piece of my hip bone off. The muscle ripped it off or the ligament or whatever it is. So I'm no biologist, but ripped it off. And so sponge and water. That's what all you need, dude. You know, get back. <laughs> Rub some dirt on it. That's it. Uh, I, I'm laughing. I, uh, I, I noticed in researching for our interview that you have suffered several concussions. I have had a couple, not as many as you, but I've had a couple. And one of those was on the soccer field. Yes. The, the playing the football. <laughs> I, I hope it wasn't one of those crashing heads, one of those, or, or just hitting the ball kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Two people going for the ball, Ugh. heads heads colliding, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No I, had, I had seven in total, five on the rugby pitch. I, I still oh, have rugby. Bumps, there you bumps go. To, yeah. Well, 18 years of rugby I played. Eh? Okay. Well, you said seven. So you can't have seven concussions and not have some realization about life or the world or something. But what was your takeaway from those? Well, so to begin with, the majority of them happened, as I say, on the rugby pitch when I was younger and I'm invincible. That was sort of my takeaway. I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm still functioning. I may, oh, do I have a tick? <laughs> you can't see that maybe, but I had a tick. Then this last one, it, it was a real shock because, well, first of all, I didn't get over it quickly. I had way lingering symptoms. I was trying to look into different therapies that have evolved over the time. I ended up having to spend one week in a black room. And the charge was, don't think. No cognitive work, nothing. No screens, no reading, no television, no, no talking, no thinking. Holy smokes. So... It brought in a, you know, a whole measure of mindfulness and meditation and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so it made me think twice about doing contact sports. So now I play any sport with a, a rugby helmet, which makes me look like Czech, if you know, the, the goalkeeper for Chelsea in the old days. But it, it makes me look very weird. And the good news is, David, is that it, when people watch me play, they, they look like, oh, that's a strange thing. What, what, who is that strange dude playing that sport. So I, of course, I'm thinking they're looking at my talent, but they're not. They're just looking at the weirdo in the zoo. Oh, goodness. It, that whole notion of spending a week of not thinking and out engaging cognitively, I mean, that that's harder than it sounds. I mean, for many of us, probably after all of our online video calls, we're probably ready for that. And yet that's actually a lot of work. I imagine 10 minutes is bad news, man. I, I could, you know, I'm, I'm generally, I think wired, like so many of us are, especially, you know, want to be front leading curious uh, and, and the, the mind's worrying. I, I love to write some, I'm, I'm a creative spirit. I've I, you know, written songs and books and poetry and so on. And so, huh, silence. Mm. 
We'll just let that silence linger for just a moment. And then turn our attention to leadership. You, you know, Mentor, you, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that you'd like to bring some soul to the show. And when you talk about leaders losing their soul, you have got extensive experience, worldwide, global corporate leadership. When you think of leaders in organizations losing their soul, what does that look like to you? What, what causes it? Well, my general thought is that's because they've forgotten who they are or they actually don't know who they are. What, what happens is not necessarily from bad intentions is that you get into this mode of doing because that's, that's showing projects, progress, and so on. And then you get in the idea of performing because that's how I get my career going. If I, if I do well, then I'm going to get the next step. And a little by little, you, you learn the game. You apply certain techniques and things you've learned at schools or whatever. And, and then you, you generally lose touch with your intuition, with your gut, with your emotion, because you got this sort of, well, I know how to do it. I'm going to do what I've always done. And, and I, I would take the example of, a, of wine. You live in, in a part of the world where there's lots of decent wine. And I've frequently come across people who say, oh, I really like my wine. And when you show them a bottle, oh, that's a very good vintage. It's 1996 Bordeaux. It comes from this part of the, the region and it really is good with this and that. And, and it's sort of like almost a, uh, an encyclopedic understanding of the wine. Do you like the wine? Oh, well, of course, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's this expensive. But the issue is that they've lost touch with the actual palate feeling their sort of gut the like a child's appreciation of the wine <laughs> oh, that's horrible and and it's appreciation that is tainted by the knowledge that it's a 1996 bordeaux from uh, Mont, whatever you know chateau and the and and so it's about being able to ally your cognitive understanding your expertises with some deeper intuitions and your emotions and mm. who you are as an individual and when you can bring both of those things together, then you can bring soul, but because hopefully you're also going to bring your imperfections to work. It's an interesting paradox. As you're talking, you're making me think about the so much of what you just discussed is our need for status and mm. the recognition and, all, and, and some of it's very legitimate. I mean, the, we need to earn our living and, and, and achieve the results we're there to achieve. And you need to be noticed in order to do more of that. I mean, there are legitimate bases for that. But there's a paradox there, isn't there, that the more you focus on the status as a goal in and of itself and lose that connection to who you truly are and what actually matters, the less status you'll have in time. And the more you can focus on, on all of those core elements, the more the other will happen. It's an interesting paradox that you're causing me to think about. Well, I, I, that's what I try to do. I had to, obviously, thinking about you before coming online, I wrote a piece, and I think it kind of encapsulates, anyway, my journey, but I'm going to invite you in, because uh, what I do is I talk about the junction of this performance and personal, the professional and personal together, putting those in, and that therein lies the soul, because, you know, just being a do-gooder, perfect for the world, only soul, you know, 100% empathy and doing shit, nothing. Well, that's no good. So you, you do, as you say, have to do, you have to perform because, you know, a company without profit goes nowhere. 
So the expression I use is you need to bring your tie and your tie dye to work. And, and so for the longest time in my life, I kind of focused on the tie and then I would take off the tie in the proverbial yellow cab going home and I'd throw on my tie dye and I go see the dead and I dance for five hours like a numbskull as one does, shaking my bones, sweating, being one of the others, despite having a title, which others might've said, oh, that's important, he's important. No, I was just part of the gang. I was within, I was, I was as useless and, you know, and, and fluid and trippy as the people within the group. But then next morning, shower, shave, you know, da, 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 put the hair back down, you know, and look the part, look the tie. And so for me, it's about being able to gracefully integrate the tie and the tie dye together to become the same thing, recognizing that I may have foibles, I have imperfections that certainly are within my tie dye, but by the way, within my tie component as well. Okay, so bringing the tie and the tie-dye, that is memorable, easy to, to wrap our head around, but it also, you just glanced over that. I was you know, going to dance, watch the dead for five hours. So you are a deadhead. Yeah, you're a Grateful Dead fan. Oh, but God, yes. <laughs> you might be the most traveled Grateful Dead fan I've ever personally met. Uh, we're counting Zoom personally here. How many times have you seen the dead perform? Well, so the exact answer is unknown. I have a, a lot of ticket stubs, but I have a lot of lost ticket stubs. I saw the dead in various iterations, you know, so I go see the Jerry Garcia band. I go see Phil Lesh and friends and all the different incarnations, all the different incarnations. And my best guess is around 200 times. Holy cow. <laughs> that is a fan. All right. That's some serious tie dye. So you're not, you're, you, I, I'm glad we drew that out. You're not joking around when you say bring the tie and the tie dye. I mean, this is a core passion for you. It's part of who you are. And obviously many, many different aspects of that. So that all gets us into, I think that's a good segue into the book that we're talking about today that you have written. It's just coming out in North America now called You Lead, right? And so we're talking about how being your yourself is going to make you a better leader. So what is at the heart of that? I, that's a notion that I think when people first hear it, it both seems almost intuitive and counterintuitive. How does that, let's just get to the heart of it. How does it make you a better leader? All right, well, the, the first is the premise that you need to lead yourself. So that you need to be, let's say, the CEO of yourself. And, and really what that requires is understanding who you are. So once you understand who you are, the chips on your shoulder, the foibles, the things that trigger you, that make you react poorly, that need, make you need to dominate somebody because that's going to make me feel better. Mistreat somebody because, well, I'm just better. I'm higher up than they are. All these tra traits that people hate as leaders come from somewhere. And so the, the, the injunction is that you need to lead yourself. You need to lead yourself, I like to say, off and on the ball, to use my uh, sports analogy, because the way you play off the ball is definitely as important as the way you play on the ball, including in the locker room. And, and so if, it, you, if you move that into the business life, you need to lead yourself as an individual, hygiene, 
food, activity, the way you sleep, meditation, the way you are with your family, the way you are with your friends, the way you are with strangers, the cashier at the grocery store, and at work. And, and once you can get some congruency in that, which also encompasses and embracing your darker side, the shadow that we all have, then you have a chance at being a more present person with the people you're talking with. And when you're more present, then you listen better. And listening is the single best skill to have as a leader, by the way, in anything. So what you're saying is that when we live in alignment with ourselves and when we show up as our, as our best self and an authentic version of ourself in every aspect of life, and particularly then when we get to work with the teams that we're leading and we're, we're coming with our whole self, number one reason that that's going to help us lead more effectively is because we're more present and we're going to be able to listen and connect with the people we're leading more effectively. Do I have that right? That's right. Okay. Beautiful summary. Okay. So as we talk about being yourself, it's a loaded phrase. And I particularly, I'm thinking of moments in my own career where being myself, and I put that in quotes because even the phrase, what is really yourself and which parts of yourself do you bring? You probably, as you're bringing the tie and the tie-dye, that's a metaphor, but you're probably not showing up to your in-person corporate boardroom wearing tie-dye. Or maybe you are. Uh, well, no, I wasn't. <laughs> so there's, there's a couple of key things. First of all, uh, maybe the first thing anyone needs to know is that if you're saying you're authentic and, and you're radically transparent and full of, full of you know, that's 100% me, then you're probably on the wrong planet. You're inaccurate. So you kind of need to recognize that it's a work in progress. And, and secondly, we all have secret gardens. So when we talk about authenticity and transparency, I am stating the necessary permission not to bring 100% of you to work. Because that's also the mystery and the pleasures of discovering people. So the secret garden is, is not some evil component, albeit if you're an ax murderer, not a good thing. <laughs> Let's just rule that out. Right. But some people are not happy with their imperfections, which is the challenge. And, and the, the, the issue there, in the word, my injunction at that point is to say, all right, it's bad, but you can go from bad to better. Just improve. You're, I'm so not an empathic person. Okay. I'm not going to ask you to become an empath, but what I am going to do is try to help you want to learn to listen better and think about somebody else a little bit more. I'm not asking you from zero to a hundred, but let's go from zero to, you know, if you're that bad to five, zero to seven and start creating that muscle of improvement. So that, that, that sort of establishes that I didn't ring my tie day. Oh, the other, sorry, the other point that I should have meant, really important point, governance. You have to recognize what freedoms you have. So if you're working as a judge in a federal court, well, bringing the tie-dye, bringing your politics to the courtroom, probably not an appropriate thing. In fact, 
not an appropriate thing. So you have to recognize the, the parameters in which you are. And so it's not like a blanket statement, bring your tie-dye to work. You might be working as a CEO of very serious financial services company, managing hundreds of billions of dollars. And if you come in zipped up on acid, yeah, great, you really like acid, but not good. So the governance issues is really important. What type of ownership are you beholden to? Because if you're 100% CEO, entrepreneur, that's another gig. Anyway, so these, there's nuances in all of this. And, and I certainly, and I certainly, you know, all cards shown, did not ever come into any boardroom with my tie-dye on. I had it underneath sometimes for me to know, just like, you know, the underwear you wear. You wear, you might sometimes wear really cool underwear because you got a big performance. You're not gonna show it, it's for you. And that's okay. So as we're, we're talking with Mentor Dial, and you said you're coming to us from London today, is that right? Indeed, West London. West London, all right. I was in West London, gosh, it seems like forever ago now when we could travel, but it's, I guess it's been two years been that long already. Thanks. Well, I'm glad that you're able to join us today. And uh, Mentor Dial is the author of You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And we're talking about how to show up as your authentic self. And what does that mean? And how, where are the limits on that? And then how that can make you a better leader by helping you be more connected uh, to the people you're leading. And in the book, you talk about being connected to your customer. And I want to dive into this a little bit because you take a, a position that I think is, it's both cultural and counterculture. So much of what you do, there is this great paradox that, that you live in the middle of, and there's just so much for us to learn there, specifically talking about technology and social media. And in this day and age, both of those things, for a variety of reasons, I would say their, their star is waning a little bit, uh, you know, with all that is happening. And yet you are if I'm reading correctly, very invested in encouraging people, you've got to be connected. You've got to be using these tools and you need to be using them well. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you believe that and what that looks like? So two things. First of all, I think that digital is something you do. It's not something you read about. And so to the extent that your customers are on digital or you have a strategic issue where digital tools could be useful, this isn't something you sort of mandate with a, as an intellectual exercise. Getting digital means doing digital. And so in today's world, there are typically many customers who are on social media. If they're on Signal, if they're on Facebook, if they're on WeChat, that's where you need to be hanging out because that's where your customers are. And it's not something you as the leader should say, well, listen, print out for me on, on some fax paper what they're saying about me. No, because you won't understand the language. You won't, under, you won't understand the context within which these tweets or messages are coming. So my, my strong desire is basically to practice digital. And, and what, I've, what I observed, having done it and been it, is that a lot of CEOs or bosses would just say yes to the agency who recommended an activity because they don't know better. The agency, of course, is gonna sell what they make money on that might help the customer. But because you don't know stuff, 
you are not going to be equipped to gauge the validity of the program that they're suggesting. And then secondly, once you're in digital and you're using the platforms where the customers are, well, it's an opportunity to actually cut through the barriers that are always put up as you go up the hierarchy. And the example I, I call out as one amongst many, one I particularly enjoy, uh, who is an Irishman who moved to the United States to take care of Verizon Wireless. His name is Ronan Dunn. And, and what's beautiful about Ronan, he, he, he kind of opened my eyes to it at some level because he was working in the wireless space, uh, mobile space. He said, I, I use Twitter 15 minutes every day and it's like a walk down the aisle. Doesn't mean he needs to tweet every day, but he used it as a way to hear all the complaints so that when he would do the board meeting and his team would come up and say, hey, Ronan, this is what they're saying. Well, that's not exactly what I heard. It's a way to cut through and, and actually participate with, listen, engage with, and know the language of your customers. So it's about using it to connect and to be informed. And I think the, the distinction that I'm hearing in everything that you're saying there is to ensure that you are using the technology as opposed to being used by the technology. So there is intent, there's purpose and a constructive, I don't know, intention, I guess, behind what you're doing there. That's different than a lot of the destructive effects that where people start mindlessly doing things. Yeah. And if you start seeing yourself opening up a million tabs, if you start feeling the distraction of all the notifications that come up, well, then you're going to be able to say, hey, this is something we need to get on top of, you know, presuming you're really aware. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to completely invisible to you all the shit that's going on and how people are being distracted. Maybe they're curious, but they're going down a million rabbit holes and they're, they're completely shotgun. They don't know what's going on. Everything's happening. They're all really busy, 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 which is what a lot of us are. And if you as a boss don't recognize these issues and things that are happening, then you're not going to be able to help implement changes. Uh, By the way, be aware yourself of all the problems that you might be suffering. So important. It's the world we live in. If you're going to lead in today's world, you got to be connected and understand today's world. And mm-hmm. if, if you're, if you can't, you're going to struggle. I mean, I, I suspect, I suspect there are plenty of people who are doing fine without it. You know, there are certain industries that are still okay. And if you surround yourself with the right team, I'm sure there are ways of getting around it, but that's not the way I prescribe because I'd rather be the leader. I mean, I'll never forget a a speech I attended by an economist from Harvard called Lester Thoreau. And I I was, um, I guess, about 18 years old. And I remember the the, the hall and he said, well, you know, the executives of the future will all know how to type. And this is back in the early 80s, right? And, you know, talking to my father who had two secretaries and and fax machines right and all that and the the letters and the transcriptions and the all that kind of old malarkey and it, it really struck me that i should learn to type so i type today and i've always typed 80 words a minute uh, not flawlessly you know i still make mistakes i always i type in lots of languages as well but that saves so much time to be able to that's a real efficiency productive element and it got me to know how to type stuff and learn how to code and i felt very it was very useful 
I feel for my whole life. It wasn't sort of a menial task. It was a useful way of being digital. And at the time, I imagine there were plenty of folks guffawing at, at that statement that Oh, totally. <laughs> so, you know, another topic that you address uh, is time. And uh, this interplay between being yourself and the use of time and acknowledging the sacredness of time. And so, you know, you, you touch on things like, you know, being on time and right and the respect that that demonstrates for your team and so on. But one of the areas that I wanted to dive into a little bit more deeply is with regard to how you manage your own time as a leader specifically. And so you have a habit, a principle or practice of only scheduling 50% of your working time, if I'm understanding correctly. Can you tell us about that? Right. So the idea is understand your job requirements and figure out how much time you need to do the full job, which includes the thinking taking care of the unexpected and having the open door to have those serendipitous moments. So in, in certain types of jobs, you, you might need 20% free time. Let's say an assistant or a lower managerial role, for example. My belief and something I came up with was when I was running different subsidiaries or the CEO of Redken, I, I kind of got to the point where I think 50% of my time must be free. Why? Well, because I always had to write intense memos and it's a lot of political mumbo jumbo, but to, to make sure that I had this, the mind space to do that, the right grammar, the right facts, these take time. And if I'm always being interrupted, every time you're interrupted, whether it's a notification, a telephone call, someone you know, coming through the door, you have to restart the process, get back into the flow. And so I always had my assistants block out 50% of my day, which, by the way, is not dogma, because, of course, if the CEO said, hey, mentor, I need to see you. Oh, yes, sir. Right. You know, you you do what you have to do. But it was the principle of it. And that way, when the the shit hit the fan when the unexpected unexpectedly arrived, I was expecting it, or at least I had room for it. And so that's how I did it. And then I, and of course it's, it was not perfect, but it was that intention that I put in place. And that was re with regard to the type of job that I had. Absolutely. And it takes a certain amount of discipline and, and intentionality, but the, the thing that strikes me, and I have this conversation constantly with leaders uh, that we're working with as they're, you know, struggling to get their head and, and hands around their schedule is you knew that there were unexpected things that were going to come up. So you scheduled them in, you just didn't label them as anything because you didn't know what they were going to be yet. And that concept is so important. And like you said, every job, every industry, everything is different, but if you've been doing your work as a leader for any length of time, six months is plenty adequate. You know the cadence, you know the frequency, you know how much those things are going to consume. And so what is the margin that you need to leave for those things? It's not to do nothing. And if it happens that that day is a great day, well, then you got some extra time to think strategically. And or, you know, call up randomly a customer do go, you know, have random acts of kindness kind of moments. And there's another thing which is important, which is very practical, which is some people say, well, I'm in meetings all day. 
well, of course, sometimes you don't have choices. But let's say at some level, when you are the CEO, you definitely have a choice as to which meetings you're going to attend. So you have to learn to say no, which means, amongst other things, delegating, letting things happen because they're adults, they're capable, they don't need you there. Let them decide, give them the agency, give them the authority to decide. And that is a much easier thing to say than to do when it comes to allocating 50% of your time to freedom. That what that requires is, is trusting people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when we're talking about time and particularly in today's environment, we are still recording this in the middle of the pandemic. And, uh, and so digital communication is, is the norm for the majority of us. Another topic that you discuss in your own background to L'Oreal was your use of email and that you had a number of folks that uh, your direct reports and your teams say you over relied on email and you learned some things from that. Can you share your experience with us and, and what some of your takeaways are and what as leaders today, how should we be thinking about our forms of communication? So I, I think my era was in, in believing that because I wrote it, it was done. And, and because I can type it, I, I, I therefore can do it. And I, it was such a facility for me. So it was the easy route to, to pop in the email. And I really thought of emails chat because I didn't have chat in my time in the corporate world. And so I'd write very small, I'd be very informal in the doing of it. What I didn't realize was that it felt like a formal injunction every time, even though the intention was more relaxed originally and coming from a a place of, hey, like a post-it note. And so not a few times, especially in North America, hey, Minter, just get up from your seat and come and talk. And so my efficiency mind was like, oh, no, no, that's not efficient. So I, I had to taper that. When it came to Europe, when I, when I moved over to the executive committee in, in Paris, a couple of other things happened. The first is the nature of politics. When you're in the executive committee was very different. And therefore you, you need to sort of practice the terrain, do some lobbying have informal conversations, work stuff before you even start typing. And and so that was the first thing. The second thing with regard to time was (laughs) I used to get into the mode of organizing 15 minute meetings face-to-face and I'd block in on Microsoft or whatever, nine to 9.15, the call or or even the meeting. And I'd show up at nine o'clock and the person wasn't there. And I'd wait until 9.05 still not there. Then I'd leave a post-it note. Came by your office for our meeting. Um, sorry, we missed each other. And then I'd leave that and go. And then I inevitably got a call at around 9.20. Well, I just got back. I just finished my coffee. Okay, but we had a meeting from 9, 9.15. Oh, you are so dogmatic. I was like, I'm sorry. Well, I have a 24-hour day. That's my limitation. I didn't realize you had a longer day than I did. Well, you know, you get on a high horse. And so I had to taper there my attitude with regard to my sort of 
nitpicky 15 minute kind of guy uh, to the culture that was France. Oh goodness, there are so many good lessons in all of all of what you just said for us about, you know, and, and just practical things. So knowing the culture that you're a part of, knowing what's going to make you effective in that that realm, the the principle of workshopping and informal communication before formal communication when you're trying to be influential. I'm just uh, highlighting a couple of the practical takeaways here for our listeners. I'm curious how all of that plays together in being yourself because being yourself going back to what we were talking about earlier you were a 15 minute guy 9 to 9 15 that means 9 to 9 15 so that's your and i'm putting it in quotes authentic self at that moment but you said i had to learn to not be that way in that particular moment in that culture that part of the world how do you reconcile those all right. So a couple of things. First of all, I, when I started my career at L'Oreal, I was in the Paris office. Then I went to the London office. I went back to the Paris office. And then I got expatriated as an American to New York. Crazy. At that point, I arrived in America as an American, even though I was an expatriate. But I was also considered an enemy or at least a headquarters guy. And, and so even though I thought I spoke the same language, I was not considered an ally immediately. Anyway, so then I got to the US and this concept of 50 minutes was then brought upon me. So the, the point I'd like to make actually is that the behaviors are not necessarily the authentic you. That's adaptation. And I am somewhat of a chameleon. I mean, when I speak French, I speak in a French accent. I don't put on a, a faux English French accent just for charm because apparently that's sexy. But I also, I acted. You know, I went to theater. And so then the question is, what is the root you? And, and what is the root you trying to achieve? The North Star of what you want to do. The how you do things it has to be ethical, it has to be consistent with who you are. But if, if you're doing that in the service of the bigger cause, the North that you want to achieve, the, my narrative is that I'm still being consistent with who I am. If I need to eliminate the 15 minute kind of guy in order to get this bigger mission, which for me, David, is, is elevating the debate and connecting dots, people and ideas. So how am I going to do that in this day? Well, maybe I need to accommodate with a 30 minute meeting to achieve that goal. I'm still going to say consistent with my values I'm going to respect other people's time because I think that's important. But I, I'm going to get rid of the 15-minute meeting. All right, inshallah. It's not that big a deal. That's a, a method to get to where you want to get to, and you have to adapt according to the cultures. Because if you go in my way or the highway, well, that's not going to work. If you communicate only one way with everybody, some people are visual, some people are oral, some people want just a FaceTime. You know, some people like coffee, some like people tea. You, you adapt. And I think that is the higher nature. Have the humility to believe that your way isn't the only way. Have the courage, in fact, to let go of that and know that you might make mistakes. Powerful, powerful. And I think you have drilled down to what fundamentally, when you're talking about showing up, 
being yourself at work and how that's going to make you the most effective leader is it's about your values and that ultimate mission and purpose that you're seeking to live out, to work out. And so those are words, again, that get thrown around a lot, values, purpose, mission, that sort of thing. I'd like to get your take because you just gave us a hint at, at, for you what that looks like. And I'm curious what you would say for a leader who is struggling like and maybe has been caught up on the behavioral side of, well, I'm doing this. That's how I am. Well, no, that's not the point. Who you are really is about your values and your mission. How do we tap into those? What does that look like? What does that mean as we're seeking to, to be our, our best self at work? So two things. It means time and introspection. So time means it just doesn't happen on the back of an envelope. You're going to need to spend time, Pomodoro technique, deep thinking time on who you are, what's important to you. And the parallel I talk about or the image I have is you need to find your North Star. And, and oh, I, I think I know my North Star. I did a poll and about 500 people answered the question. And just around 80% of people only have a vague or less than good idea of their North Star. And that's normal because they haven't spent the time to do it. And even when you think you know it, of course, it's still an imperfect idea, but at least you think you've got a good North Star. So you need to spend considerable amount of time. And the second is introspection. And that is allowing you to uncover your shadows as well as who you are and what do you want to be. And so the exercise I like to encourage people to do is project yourself way into the future, way past anything that you, well, I don't know what it's going to be. Well, sure, but that's the idea because I don't know anybody who knows how to exactly predict the future. But if you can portray a stronger image of the future you, then there's a chance that you might become that person. Because if it's not clear to you, there's a far higher chance that you're frustrated by the you that you become because you haven't become the you you want to be because you don't know who you want to be. So the, the level of introspection is figure out more about who you want to be and then take steps towards that. The second part to your point about values is know why that future you is important to you. If you have a, an idea of that future you, let's say, I'm 56 as we speak. At my 75th birthday, it'd be in 19 years time. I have no idea if I'm going to be alive, but let me imagine what people are going to say at my 75th birthday. And they're not going to say, oh, Minter, we love you because you were a CEO. What I want them to talk about is why they love me for who I am, the person I am and, and was being. Of course, that takes doing because you don't just be without doing. You need to perform, you need to do things, but it's about who you are as an individual. And then once you know who you are as an individual, what your North Star is, you look at your values and those anchor, they provide the why for your North. And what we do, we don't have the time for that. We, we rush, rush, rush. We have a vague idea. Intellectually, we want to be happy, wealthy, and uh, healthy. And everyone wants that, but it's not specific enough. So the hard work is to spend the time and have the introspection to be more precise on the North that you want to have, one that resonates to you. And it's not a precise North, but it is your North. And that's what counts. 
Wow. I hope as you're listening that you're realizing that being yourself in the sense of what that means from a leadership perspective and showing up with the real you for your team or your company or your organization every day is not a loose, lazy, I'm just going to show up and kind of be myself all over the place. This is work. It's, it's important work. It's vital work and it's life work. It's not just business work, but it's life work that transforms your business leadership if you'll do it. And mentor, I so appreciate you sharing that wisdom with us that uh, I'm, re- I'm reminded of, uh, I've been reading Radical Compassion and the way that Tara talks about tapping into and acknowledging what does that best version of you look like? What is your higher self? And we always have that if we take the time to think about it. And, and the projection, as you say, of, of thinking about who that is that we want to be and how we want to show up, not the status, not the trappings, but who we actually are and thinking about that will help us to become that. And there's such a powerful transformation that can happen there. I appreciate you bringing that up for us. So we are running short on time. I want to make sure that we are able to find out where to connect with you, where to get your, I'm sure it's on Amazon, but so the book is lead you, you lead, you lead. (laughs) I, you know, all, all the whole interview. No, but that's so good. No, but you lead you. It's all good. You lead you. Love it. You lead. How being yourself makes you a better leader. So tell us where to connect with you, where to find the book. Uh, Where are you? So um, I want to add just one more thing. And thank you very much for all that and allowing me to say it. I did work on myself at a very deep level. And I, I spent the time, a lot of resources, figuring out who my grandfather was after whom I was named. And it's really integral to my whole journey. So when I put on that tie-dye, it's also the United States Naval officer of my grandfather that I'm putting on, or at least that's the mantle, the, the thoughts that I have, and, and the courage that he had, and the courage that I want to live up to. Uh, so this is, it's a, it's a much, it's been a longer process, and it's certainly not something that happened overnight, David. And I, and I don't feel like I, I, you know, I just whipped it up. I screwed up many times. I, I came up with ideas that uh, wasn't really good. And I had friends who said, Minter, come on. You know, so, and it's a really messy journey that it's been for me, but it's been deep and it's been so rewarding to finally feel like I got into a good place. But who knows? Maybe I've, I still have much more work to be done. My books are all on the big A word. I want to do uh, Amazon. Um, want to do one little call out to bookshop.org, which is a lovely US initiative in support of independent bookshops that'll be launched in Britain this year and hopefully elsewhere. My film, The Last Ring Home, is available on uh, YouTube, History Hit TV, and uh, iTunes. And uh, it's on PBS on occasion, usually uh, around Memorial Day. And otherwise, I'm available on various social media platforms, Twitter and the like, Instagram, uh, at mdial, M-D-I-A-L, and I blog and podcast uh, at Minter Dial and Minter Dialogue, respectively. 
And we will certainly put all of those in the show notes, but for all our audio folks, now you've got them, you know where to connect with Minter and you've got a taste today of some of the wisdom, uh, hard earned life wisdom, Minter, as you were saying, but hard earned life wisdom that we can all benefit from. And so we have just tasted that, just scratched the surface, but there is more available for you. And I got to tell you, in terms of you lead, we only in however much time we've spent together, 45 minutes or so, we we have only barely begun, uh, but you get the gist. And if you can show up really keyed into your values, your mission, your purpose, and choose how to be effective in those things, as opposed to just being right. And I put that in quotes, you are on your way to being the leader that you'd want your boss to be. So Mentor, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your wisdom and for doing the work that you've done and sharing that with us today. It's been my deep pleasure, David. Thank you for having me on. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>